So I'm just going to tell you about a little bit about me uh, this morning. For those who don't know me, a lot of you know me. I've been here a long time. But uh, 17 years ago, July 1st, actually, which is tomorrow's July 1st, uh, 17 years ago, I came to Great Oaks. The very first thing I did at Great Oaks was a funeral. Uh, very first thing. Uh, someone had died in the life of the church, and I did that. And then it began a great journey. Uh, back then, we were in the elementary school with about 120 people, and uh, it was a different world back then. Uh, I call it the pioneer days of the church. It was really a pioneer days of the church back then because we had to set up, tear down everything, kids' town, which we didn't call kids' town back then, but a lot of other things going on. So it was a lot of fun. I enjoy, truthfully, as I look back at all of my ministry, not only here, but 13 years prior to that, I served as a senior pastor in a church in Virginia, and 10 years prior to that as a student pastor. Uh, so you add those up at 40 years of ministry. Um, I've been through, but the greatest ministry and the, and the greatest joy I've had in ministry has been at Great Oaks here. And I pray for you guys that the future will be uh, as, as brighter, brighter than the past has been because there's opportunities uh, here in this area and pray for us. Actually, we are leaving in the morning to drive to Tennessee uh, to, to go to a place where we're going to retire next to our kids and our grandkids. But retirement for me is uh, working when I want to, not because I have to. That's my definition of retirement. So I'm still going to do something. Uh, we'll figure out what that is once we get down there. But uh, just want to let you know about that. So uh, it's been great. Uh, everything's worked out fantastic for us. We sold our house a year, year and a half ago, almost. A friend of ours let us live in their place. So all of tomorrow I have to take is a 5 by 8 U-Haul. And that's it. Uh, pull behind uh, to go, go to Tennessee. So... Uh, it's it's going to be a great time for us, but I hope it's a great time for you here. I pray for you. I'll be praying for you guys every day. And if you're ever in Tennessee, in Knoxville, Tennessee area, come uh, see me, uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> just let me know before you show up, okay? I've had about 25 people say they're going to come through there on their way to Gatlinburg. I'm an hour from Gatlinburg. And so we'll see you, about, see you there. Okay. Now, I tell you all that to kind of give you my credentials, okay? <laughs> this is why I'm preaching today. I've done this. I did preach almost every Sunday for 28 years uh, between here and my previous church. And so I have a little bit of experience in this, just a little bit. But the deal is, in spite of that, okay, in spite of that, I, I thought about introducing myself in a different way today to kind of go in with what we're talking about in, in the message. Uh, other day, I was watching one of my favorite TV shows. It's called Elementary. Uh, if you, I don't know if you know, it's about Sherlock Holmes, and uh, Sherlock Holmes on there is an addict, and he goes to, to AA meetings, and when he went to an AA meeting, he stands up and he says, my name is Sherlock, and I'm an alcoholic, that's, and I ask my daughter, who is an addiction recovery counselor, is that true? And she says, yeah, that's pretty true. They generally do that kind of thing. And the reason you do that at that meeting is because the first step in recovery from anything is to recognize and take ownership of your condition. That's the very first step. you got to take ownership. So this is not an AA meeting today. This is an SA meeting today, a Sinners Anonymous meeting. So let me introduce myself in that light. I am Bill, and I am a sinner. I'm a rebel. At my very core, I'm a lawbreaker. I miss the mark. My nature is to rebel against God's rule in my life. And it's not all my fault. I was born that way, you know? I don't know about you, but nobody had to teach me how to be selfish. And I didn't have to teach my kids how to be selfish, and my kids I didn't have to teach my, my grandkids how to be selfish. Did any of you have a little child and you had to look at them and go like, honey, you shouldn't share so much? <laughs> have you ever had to do that? No, you never had to do that, did you? 
because that's not what we are. We are born, in a sense, I think, not blank slates, but as people who it's all about me. It's about me. But the good news is, it's not all bad because I'm in great company today. Because you're a sinner, and you're a sinner, and you're a sinner. I can point my finger and point every one of you. And so all of us are in the same boat. And the reason I know that's not because of my opinion, but it's because of what it says in Romans 3.23, for it says we have all sinned, and we fall short of God's glory. So there's really not an anonymous part of the meeting here today. Sinners Anonymous is not really anonymous at all. We're all sinners. We're all part of this meeting, okay? So every Sunday, come to think of this as the Sinners Anonymous meeting, okay? But everybody knows what's who you are when you walk in. Well, the good news is, in regard to this, and I said a while ago in regard to this whole thing of, of, of recovery, th- the best thing we can ever do is be in recovery. We're never cured of our problem. And so in the same sense, the good news, I'm a recovering sinner. And many of you are recovering sinners, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus Christ did when he died on a cross for my sins. Because in another verse in Scripture, in Romans 5, 8, it says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, he dies for us. So when I was 14 years old, I grew up in a church. I never knew a time when I was not in a church, in a Baptist, good Southern Baptist church in Virginia. And when I was 14, I walked an aisle, and I said yes to the pastor, and he, he prayed with me, and I was baptized, and then somebody showed me something uh, to kind of explain what it was to be a follower of Christ, and what they did is they used a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws, okay, and The Four Spiritual Laws, there's this thing, and it should have been incredibly clear to me when I heard this because it's the most incredible, simple illustration of all time, it kind of says this, 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 imagine this, this is the director's chair, okay, and who sits in this chair, they, in this little four spiritual laws, it says, directs and leads your life. And up to the age of 14, who was sitting in this chair? Me. I was sitting in this chair. But at the age of 14, what I made a decision to do is to get out of the chair and let Jesus Christ sit in that chair. And he became the director, the Lord, the master of my life at that point in time. And it should have been incredibly clear what that meant. It wasn't just a little decision. It was a huge decision. But basically at 14, I want to let you know, I was a really good kid. I wasn't one of these rebels. My parents thought, said, of all, I have three younger sisters. They said, you were easy compared to your three younger sisters. (laughs) They told me that. (laughs) Now, if my sisters are watching online today, they'll deny that. But it's true. (laughs) So the deal, deal was this. Okay, for the next few years, through my teenage years, uh, nothing really much changed. I'd been going to church before. I kept going to church. I kept doing the same things over and over. But then when I, di- I got uh, around 17, 18 years old, I graduated from high school, and I did something. I asked a question that all high school graduates ask, hopefully before they graduate, but sometimes not till then. And that question is this. Okay, what's next? What's next? You all ask that question. You do it at different stages of life, but all of us ask it when we get out of high school because we need to go, we're going to college, what are we going to do with our life, what's next? And so I asked that question, except the problem was I asked the wrong person. I asked me. And so what, what happened? So basically at that point in time, I sat back down in the chair and said, I'm the director of my life now. 
And so I decided me wanted to go to uh, become an architect in school. And so I went for two years to a community college, pre-engineering, two more years working to try to figure out. And so you see how that worked out. <laughs> I've never been an architect, okay? Never finished that. It wasn't through that, that two years of school and two years of working trying to figure out what was next that I finally got out of the chair again and asked Jesus Christ, what would you like me to do with my life? We, Pastor Jake was talking a while ago about some of the core classes. One of them is, is the class where you learn about your shape. And I would encourage every student in school not to sit around and say, what do I want to do, but ask, well, how has God shaped me? What is my spiritual gifts, my heart, my abilities, my personality, and my experience? And to put those all together, because let me tell you, once you do that, and you go in God's direction, and you make Jesus Christ, you submit to God, what happens is, is it changes the, the trajectory of your life. And that's what it did for me. Because at that point, what happened was, when I was like 22, finally, I'm a little slow, I finally asked God, what does he want me? Now, I will tell you, just don't think, just because I say this, it doesn't say you're going into ministry, Okay. But we're all ministers in a sense that God says. We learned that last week in priests and everything. But the deal is, he's going to give you a direction based on how he shaped you. So you might be, God might shape you, to call you to be exactly what you are, but you need to make sure it's what God wants you to do because that's what it means to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. See, we love the Savior part, don't we? Yeah, we get our ticket to heaven punched. But the Lord part is a little tougher and if you'll notice, if you start reading through Scripture, almost every time that Jesus is mentioned, what does he call? Lord. 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 That means he is over. You submit to his authority in your life. You let him sit in the director chair of your life. I remember when I first came here uh, 17 years ago, there was a brand new book out 17 years ago. Well, it's like, I thought my son was going into the eighth grade when I came at Germantown Hills. He turns 31 two days from now. Seems like an eternity ago. But I remember when I first came here, it was a brand new book coming out. It was called The Purpose Driven Life. And everybody in the church read the book and we did 40 days of purpose twice we didn't get it the first time. We're going to do it twice. And, uh, and, and, and you know what's interesting about the book? I don't know how it became almost a bestseller of all time besides the Bible. The first four words in that book, anybody know what they are? It's not about you. It's not, I started to say me, but it's not about you. That's what it says. It's not about you. And it goes on from there talking about we're to live a life of purpose shaped to follow Jesus Christ and make him Lord of our lives. So, we come to today's message, and what it is is that uh, a couple weeks ago when Pastor Jake asked me to, to, to preach today, <laughs> uh, he said, would you preach in the context of where we are in the scripture with this series in First Peter? And so we've been in First Peter talking about First Peter, and how Peter was this guy who was teaching, uh, teaching people who were in exile, who were, were uh, being uh, pushed out of their hometowns and pushed away from things and under a lot of different things going on, how, how they were to be set apart, to be different. And I looked at the passage, we're in second. So if you've got to grab your Bibles in whatever format you have them today, okay, electronic, that's what I use now. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, so we're going to uh, camp out for a little while today. And I'm going to focus on verses 13 through 17 because verses, the last part I'm going to mention today and talk about briefly, but the issue is, is you're going to be talking about those more later in this series because this series does repeat, uh, Peter repeats himself a couple of times to make emphasis of this, and so you'll have specific sermons that deal with a lot of the things in the last part, but I will talk about it somewhat today. Now we come to a, in this passage in 1 Peter 2 verses 13 through 25, we come to a set of difficult teachings. Not difficult to understand, difficult to do. And that's what scripture does a lot, isn't it? It's not a lot of scripture is not difficult to understand, it's just difficult to do. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I understand that. I have people too, come to me all the time over the last 40 years of ministry and they're going like, and, and we talk about something and I say, and it's, it's counseling, and it, it'll say like, I said, well, you know what to do, right? Yeah. Well, why'd you come to me? Because I needed somebody else to tell me what to do. And I'm going like, no, you didn't. You just need to do what you know to do. And so this is what Peter, uh, Peter's saying here. And he's telling these people who are in a difficult situation, and they're under this crazy, probably crazy emperor named Nero, they're telling him, this is how you should respond to governmental authorities. Don't you love the passage and we're in Illinois? <laughs> I thought about the irony of this. I don't think Tennessee has exactly the same problems Illinois does, okay? At least, I don't think they have any previous governors, at least in the last 10 or 15 that are in prison. But... Uh, but, there, you know, the reality is, this is what he said. So, so understand, this is not like fairyland. This is like they, the, the, the emperor and the people that were leading these people, the father were to follow, the, the governmental authorities, weren't any better than what we have. Matter of fact, they were probably worse. And I don't think they've tried to kill you recently, have they? You know, in Illinois. No. They try to tax you to death, but they're not trying to, you know, do those things. So this is what Peter says. He says, and I love the first four words, and I chose the NLT version for a purpose because it starts, I think, at a place it needs to. It says, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed, for the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that you will live honorable lives. Should, it is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet, now I love, most people like that, you are free, and they forget the rest of it, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. Now, when Peter begins this, submit yourself to the Lord for the sake of every human institution, it doesn't sound strange to me. It sounds radical. It sounds like he's nuts. He's saying, I'm to, I'm to submit to governmental authorities. And when we read that and in any context, whether it be then or now, we're going like, really? Really? Because the word submit comes from a Greek word, and you don't have to know the Greek word, okay? I don't remember Greek anymore. I, I studied about 500 years ago Greek, but... The deal is, it doesn't matter whether you know it or not, but the Greek term means deference to another person's authority. It's as simple as that. And Peter calls for believers to submit with a willing heart. That's what he's saying. And it's not just Peter, but in Scripture, we see in Matthew 22, it says to submit to human government requires that we render to Caesar. What's Caesar's? 
And then in 1 Timothy 2, it's, it involves sincere. It says we're to have sincere prayer for rulers and authority over us regardless, irregardless of whether we agree with their politics and policy. We're to pray for them. And in Romans 13, it says it means that we live, it says that we're to live honorably and peaceably, be model citizens, not social misfits and rebels. So P Peter urges his readers to recognize these higher authorities and even uh, the, like the kings and even the local authorities like the governors, he says, regardless, this is the hard part, regardless of their corruption and idolatry, they're to be respected and supported. And the question we have is, but why? But why would Peter say that? And I love what he says. This is really interesting. He says in verse 15, It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. The word silence here literally means to muzzle, that we muzzle them. And, and, and as to render somebody speechless because of guilt or to defeat and debate, that's what it means. You see, baseless charges and rumors have been flying around in, the, in, in that day and age against Christians. They, there were things like saying they're loyal to a different king, or they're a rebellious sect, they want to overthrow the government, they're subversive. And Peter says by submitting voluntarily, by doing right before God and people, you would muzzle what they're saying. They're, it, you prove them wrong in a real sense. And behind Peter's command to submit in verse 13, 14, and his reason to submit in verse 15 is, is verse 17, which is an important principle he talks about here. Verse 17, he says, respect everyone, love the family of believers, fear God and respect the king. Now those 11 words are easy to, to write, but together they create a tough balancing act. Because in today's context, you know what this means? This is what it's all about today, right? It's not about what it meant then. What does it mean today? In today's context... We're to submit to the president even if we didn't vote for him or his party. And we submit to the decisions of lawmakers even though we think their laws are sometimes senseless and excessive. In short, we submit not because we're blind nationalists, but because we are what? Slaves of Christ. Slaves of God is what it says. And as such, our obligation is to serve him and to do so, we need to live in such a way as to bring honor to his reputation in the public square. The, but let me tell you this. The Bible never suggests that rulers will be perfect. And our civil submission is not conditional upon our government modeling Christian virtue or values. Because remember, in Peter's day, the empire wasn't a benevolent pro-Christian pro monarchy. A percentage of the taxes Christians paid in that day supported the construction of pagan temples. So, the combination posed a dilemma for Peter and his readers. I mean, how does one honor all people? How does one love the brethren? How does one fear God? And how, how does one honor that particular king in all that together? Because he says it's not either or, it's all of these together. Now, it's important to understand that Peter's call to submit to established government as a system for maintaining order doesn't mean that God endorses every particular ruler. It's not what he's saying. Okay, some people go like, well, this is God's man. I heard my dad say that one time. My dad had, and I had hugely different politics. We were both believers. You know, I've come to understand that you don't have to be a Republican to be a Christian. Okay. Or a Democrat to be a Christian, you have to be a Christian first, you know. 
But my dad was a union guy. He grew up in a factory. And so, enough said, okay? And so, I mean, I've heard people say that, but it's not, this is not what the Bible says that they're, they're endorsed by God, and neither does it approve, neither does, does Peter say that he approves of particular laws that stand in defiance against God's will. Because we see in Scripture again and again, believers are not obligated to follow such laws that conflict with God's clearly revealed will. If you want to look at civil disobedience in Scripture, let me give you some passages. In Daniel chapter 6, read that. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, read that. Mark chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, read that. These are all verses that talk about people in Scripture, followers of God, that stood in opposition to what was going on. They, they did that. But in doing so, they also were ready to suffer the consequences for their disobedience and outspoken criticism. We're not a, and I don't know about you guys, but we live in a post-Christian nation now. And Christians, we have not, probably most of us have not been persecuted the way that we're in, in Peter's day. But it's possible the time could come that that would happen. And because of that, we have to ask ourselves before it happens, or even in the midst of what it happens, how are we going to respond as followers of Christ? I thought about uh, the other day, I heard some things, I'm not sure how true they are, but I, I thought about this hypothetical situation that suppose the government, the state of Illinois, decides that they're going to make every hospital do abortions. I know of some hospitals around here that will not do abortions. They won't do it. So what do they do if the government says, you have to do it? Shut down, which is an option. Fight the government for years and years and years in court and spend millions and millions and millions of dollars. That's another option. What do you do? But see, we live in a context of where we, we, there comes a point in time where we have to decide, okay, where is it God's will is very clear, and we, it's opposed to the government. He says, you know, you can oppose that, but you've got to pay the consequences. But the things beyond that, we're to submit to that authority because it says that God has established this process of order in our culture. And next week, Pastor Jakes will be talking about in the family how that works as well that we need to understand. Not because certain people are better or less, but because, can you imagine a country, and some of you thought, think this would be great until you think about, think through this, a country without any government, with no laws. It'd be total chaos. It'd be totally crazy. I know, I was over in Mali a few years ago on a mission trip, and I saw chaos over there. You know, I mean, it's like everybody, there's no traffic laws, there's no, I don't know if there's any laws over there. Everybody carries a gun. You know, like an Uzi or something, you know, and they're walking around. The it's crazy. I feared for my life every moment of every day when I was there, except when I was out in the bush in the middle of nowhere. It was kind of weird, didn't it? The cities, I was fearing for my life in the bush with no electricity, no running water, no anything. It was great, you know? But there was, it's a lawless situation, and you don't, I don't think you'd want to live there, just tell you the truth. See, we live in a constant tension which Peter talks about, it seems impossible when he says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And the only way that we can deal with that in our culture today is by 
having God-given wisdom that can help us live life appropriately in this tension. Now, I told you I was going to focus on those verses, and I want to mention the other ones, okay? Because there's not a great, straightforward uh, connection between what he talks about next and our culture, but I'll give you a little bit of one, okay? The next thing, he goes from this issue, this larger issue of how we submit to authorities in government, and then Peter says, and what he's doing to the people in that day, he said, guys, to be a Christian means you're set apart, and so that means you respond to things differently than everybody else does. And so he says this in verse 18. You who are slaves, you're going like, slaves, we don't have slaves today. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when, conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. That sounds like the most sadistic verse in all of Scripture. Because you're going like, yeah, if you're getting beaten, you know, it's no, it's no honor to you. But if you, you know, endure it patiently, God loves, you know. You've got to understand the context. God is saying here, it's how we witness. Once again, it's for the sake of Christ that we do these things. Not because of any other thing. And, and when we, he talks about slaves, that was a reality in that day. Paul was not endorsing slavery here, folks, okay? He's not endorsing slavery. He's simply saying that's a reality. And those of you who are slaves who have become followers of the way, that's what it was called in that day, then what it is is that you need to be different in how you respond to your masters. Now, some of us will go like, well, what's the closest analogy to that? Uh, work. You're not slaves at work, are you? But some of you feel that way. You're going like, I mean, you know, if I leave here, I'll just, you know, and I just don't like my boss, and they're horrible, and this is how I should respond. And the reality is, is that even as Christians, when we work under ungodly people, we're to respond in a different way. We aren't to lash out at them. And if that's not enough in here, then... Peter concludes the chapter in verses 21 through 25. And I'm just going to read this and just comment one thing, then I'm going to close today. It says, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. You're going to be talking about suffering in a few weeks in, in, uh, in 1 Peter. And so I'm not going to really spend a lot of time on this today, but just mention and read this. He is your example. He says, Christ is your example, and you must follow in his steps. Let me ask you a question. If you're a follower of Christ, what do you call yourself? This is easy. This is not a hard question, okay? A Christian. A Christian. You know what that means? Little Christ. That's what a Christian is. That's one definition, okay? Which means what? What's it mean? It means you're to follow the example of Christ. He is your example upon this earth. So it says here, Peter says, if it's not enough for me to say it, follow Christ's example. Verse 22, he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who, was always, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that you can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to, the, to your shepherd, the guardian 
of your souls. That could be a whole message just in that one little passage right there. But I just want to say this, that the deal is this. He's saying, like, if you don't get it, if you're a follower of the way, a follower of Jesus Christ, he is the way you follow. And here is an example. This is how he responded to abuse of authority. And in your life group this week, if uh, there is a there, there is a passage session in there I put in there with four little verses of scripture of talking about how Jesus responded to authority. You can look at that and, and understand that a little bit more. But the deal is, is he did basically, Peter just gives a summary here and saying he didn't, he didn't turn against people. He, and if you look at scripture, you'll find out that's true. He simply responded in a way that honored God the Father. Now, it's true that when the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrates people's hearts on a wide scale, culture is transformed, evils like poverty, slavery, and oppression are radically diminished, but these social changes are the result, not the goal of God's ultimate priority, that he wants to transform our hearts and our minds so that we are set apart and different. I was trying to think when I was doing this, knowing this is my last sermon at Great Oaks, it sounds like I'm doing a funeral message or something sometimes. I'm not really sure about this, but it's not. Let me tell you, folks, you know, somebody said, are you going to cry? I'm going like, no, I'm not going to cry. Unless Pastor Dan's already tried to get me to do that twice today. And uh, <laughs> I went, I'm going, you know, anyway. Uh, I was trying to think of how to, how to close out here. What kind of thing I can can tell you. Let's go back to the beginning when I talked about this. Sinners Anonymous, okay? You're not going to forget Sinners Anonymous. See, that's a, that's a sad thing about preaching. Uh, studies show that you'll forget 90% of what, I've, of what I've said within 72 hours. The 10% you remember is the illustrations. So, yeah, yeah, it's just it's sad. So, you've always forgot about, you already forgot 80% of what I'm saying, you know? <laughs> Didn't take you long. The chair, the sinner's anonymous. The question I would ask you is this. What does it mean to take yourself out of this chair on a daily basis and let Jesus sit there? Every day maybe you need to have a chair. We'll call it the director's chair. And what you can do is you can sit down in that chair and you go, oh, I almost sat down in it earlier today. And I'm going, like, I can't sit in this chair because that means... I'm going to you know, use the illustration later. It means I'm in charge. I'm large and in charge. I let my inner narcissist come out. But see, this, this today, it's not about, I want to say this. 17 years here was not about Pastor Bill. Even though I'm sitting in a chair right now because my back hurts. Okay? <laughs> I got to understand that. It's about Jesus Christ. And my goal for 17 years has been one thing and one thing alone. To point you toward letting Jesus Christ sit in that chair every day in every decision. That you'll be set apart. That's what holy means. You're going to like holy means, oh, I'm not holy. If you're set apart, you're holy. That's what my goal has been. And this chair is not Pastor Jake. It's about him pointing you 
towards Christ so that every day you will allow Christ to sit in your life, sit, sit in that chair and he will direct everything you do from how you respond to authority to how you treat your wives we'll talk about next week to how to how you live your daily lives and even when you become a senior in high school and you ask the question what do I do now what's next you'll go like God what do you want me to do and I believe that when you do that, he will seek and it'll, he will revolutionize your life and you will become a different person, a person that will attract people to Christ. And see, it becomes this. We live for what I call an audience of one. I, that was my first sermon, I think, here at Great Oaks 17 years ago. Living for an audience of one. And that's what we're supposed to be doing every day. And the audience of one, guess not what? It's not me. It's not you. It's him. See, because of what Jesus did, it's not about me anymore. I am to submit to God's authority in my life. That means I am a different person. I respond to people differently. I act differently. It changes the trajectory of my life. It's easy to understand, harder to do. And so today what I want to do is I was reading a book recently by a guy named George Barna, George Barna book called Revolution. And in that book, it's, it, George Barna is kind of like the George Gallup of the Christian world, okay? If you don't know who George Barna is, he's kind of like this guy that does research and puts together trends and understanding and was reading that. At the end of that book, he's talking about this whole deal with Christianity in America and how people are, which was encouraging to me, he was talking about how so many people are really seeking a deeper relationship with Christ, and at the end of that book, he had this thing called affirmations. And so what I did is I kind of took his affirmations and adapted them a lot today. So that we, and I want to read this to you as an affirmation. This is an affirmation I hope that you will agree with because this is what it means in, a, in, in 12 state statements, really brief statements, what it means to let Jesus be the Lord of Savior of your life. And you get out of that chair and let him do this. This is not, this is not totally inclusive, but it covers a lot of ground, Okay. So just think about this, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to close our service this morning. My life is not my own. I exist as a free person, but have voluntarily become a slave to God. My role on earth is to live in a new and radical way, committed to love, holiness, and advancing God's kingdom. Therefore, I acknowledge the following 12 things. Number one, I am a sinner. Broken by my disobedience, but restored by Jesus Christ in order to participate in good works that please God. We could stop there for a while and kind of think about that. Number two, God created me for his purposes. When I get out of bed each day, I do so for one purpose, to love, obey, and serve God and his people. Number three, I anticipate and will gladly endure various hardships as I serve God, for this is the price of participation in winning the spiritual war. Number four, I cannot transform the world. Remember, it's not about me. But I can allow God to use me to transform some part of it. Folks, you're important in God's plan. Number five, my commitment to Christ is sealed by my complete surrender to God's ways and his will. I gain my security, my success, and my significance through my surrender to him. Folks, it's not about what you have or what you look like or anything. It's about you get your success and security through Jesus Christ and your significance through him. The next one might, might shock you when I first say it, but 
stay with me for the whole thing. I am not called to attend or join a church. Pause. I am called to be the church. Church is not a building. It's not a location. It's you. Worship is not an event I attend or a process I observe. It's a lifestyle I lead. Number eight, I do not give away 10% of my resources. I surrender 100%. That's stewardship of our life. That's what God calls us to do. Every, deci- every financial decision is a spiritual decision. Number nine, God has given me natural abilities and supernatural abilities, all intended to advance his kingdom, and I will deploy those abilities for that purpose. Number 10, there is no greater calling than knowing to serve God. Number 11, the world is desperately seeking meaning and purpose. I will respond to that need with the good news and meaningful service. And number 12, this is, this is one of my favorites. Um, I hope this is on my tombstone, which I probably won't have because I'm going to be cremated. We'll talk about that later. No, we won't because I won't be here. Um, I want nothing more than to hear God say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. How many of you agree with those statements? Anybody want to be bold and raise your hand? That's what it means to get out of this chair every day and to live for Christ. To let him sit here in the director's chair. It's not about Sunday morning at church, even though it's part of it. It's about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, living for Christ every day. And I would challenge you, to understand that and to accept that and to do that. So this morning, before we close, I'm going to pray in a moment. Our band, band, come on out. Band, come on out. Band, come on out. They're, they're waiting for me to pray, but they're not listening back there. If they don't come out, I'll pray in a minute, and they'll come out then. That's fine. They're not used to me. Come on out, Dad, guys. Okay, come on out. We're going to pray. I want to say something while they're coming out. Okay. There's two groups of people here today, okay? Two groups of people here today. The first group is what? Those who call themselves uh, followers of Christ. I just spoke to you with this af- these affirmations. But remember, there's another group here, and that group is people who may have never said, uh, they're still sitting in this chair. They're still going like, I'm the director in control of my life, and I have never, and, and I'm still a sinner. Yeah, we're all still sinners. Let me tell you, folks, the toughest thing in the world is, I don't know about you, but I still sit in this chair once in a while. You know, it's not like I become a Christian and I get out of the chair and God's perfectly in control. No, sometimes I go like, you know, I'm jumping up and down down out of the chair because I just don't want God to be in control of that part of my life. But the reality is, is God wants us to do. But there are people here who have never said yes to Jesus Christ. And so today, the first step in recovery is to admit that you're a sinner to say yes to Jesus Christ and understand he's the only way that you can ever have a life that's meaningful and purposeful and that what he did upon a cross for you is enough. And to accept that, make, ask him to be Lord and Savior of your life, and then you can do those 12 things with the struggle every day. So, in a moment when we pray, I'll ask our, our prayer team people to go to where they're going to go and there'll be people to pray with you and whatever. Uh, there would be nothing greater to, that will please God. You're not here to please me or anybody else. Please God. 
than to see you go to one of these people and say, hey, I won't admit that I'm a sinner. I need to follow Jesus Christ. Tell me how. And they'll do that. They're, they're trained how to do that. So this morning, I want you to, let's all stand together. And uh, let me pray for you. And then the band will play a song. And then you can go and, um, and uh, make your decisions for Christ or whatever. God, I, I come to you right now, and I would ask more than anything that you would allow us right now to understand that the Christian life is easy to understand, harder to do. But God, it makes a huge difference. I know in my life it made a huge difference that many, many years ago when I said yes to you, and eventually I got around to getting out of that chair and letting you be the Lord and Savior of my life, of sit, submitting to you, God, that what happened was it changed the trajectory of my life in a way that I did not see coming. Man, when I was 18, 19 years old, the last thing I thought I'd ever be doing is standing in front of a bunch of people and talking. Because I was this shy, reticent, behind-the-scenes type person, God. And you, God, you, you, you almost transformed not only my life by giving me peace and direction and comfort and security, but what you did, God, is you changed who I was. And you used me in ways over the last 40 years of ministry that totally have amazed me, God, but it's always been you. And I know, God, the next how many ever years that I have upon this earth, you will continue to use me as well in totally different ways, things that I'm not even thinking about right now. But more than anything, God, I, I thank you for the fact that you will do so and that you are faithful, God. Thank you for the... Uh, for Peter sharing uh, straightforwardly with us in Scripture how we're to respond to, to a broken world, that we're to be set apart different. Help us, God, each one of us this morning to adopt those 12 things that I just adapted out of, out of a book. But I think they're great things. It's a good starting point. It's not the ending point. But it's a good starting point to understand what it means to live the Christian life in a world that's broken. Thank you, God, for what you do and what you'll do in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name.